A missing woman rescued from a 30-foot storage container. Three bodies found on a remote 95-acre wooded property. A killer's confession to a quadruple homicide. Families finally get answers they've been waiting for and praying for. And a serial killer is caught. This is Method and Madness, Episode 3, Serial Killer Todd Kolhep, Part 2. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. In last week's episode, I talked about how police had discovered 30-year-old Kayla Brown on Todd Kolhep's 95-acre fenced property in Woodruff, South Carolina. She had been missing for more than two months, and after busting through five padlocks, Police found her chained inside a pitch-black, 30-foot-long storage container. Now, the team of officers that were issuing a search warrant at Kolhep's residence in Moore were informing him that Caleb Brown was found and that they had a lot of questions. The officers told Kolhep in the foyer of his two-story brick home that they knew he shot Charlie Carver and that they had cadaver dogs that were going to locate Carver's body. They gave Kolhep the opportunity to tell them where Charlie's body was located, but Kolhep denied shooting anyone and acted oblivious to Brown being found on his Woodruff property. Sitting on a chair in a blue t-shirt, hands handcuffed behind his back, he then requested a lawyer and was arrested for kidnapping and placed into a patrol car. En route to the hospital and later to investigators, Kayla Brown told of her 65-day ordeal. It began when she and Charlie showed up to Kolhep's Moore house on August 21, 2016, and followed Kolhep to his Woodruff property, Brown and Carver in Charlie's car, and Kolhep in his. Upon their arrival outside the chain-link fence that ran along the perimeter of the land, Kolhep got out of his car, unlocked the gate to the large property, got back in his car, and drove through the gateway. Brown and Carver still following behind in Charlie's car. After both cars were inside the fence, Kolhep stopped his car again, got out, and locked the gate behind them. Now all three were inside the property, and the way out was a set of keys in Kolhep's pants pocket. The plan for that Sunday was for Brown and Carver to clean up some wooded trails in the area, so after parking their cars and walking up to the main building on the property, Kolhep handed each of them hedge clippers and a bottle of water. The couple stood outside the two-story building waiting for further instructions while Kolhep went inside for a few minutes. Five minutes later, Kolhep came back outside with a gun and immediately shot Carver three times in the chest. He then grabbed the stunned Brown and forced her inside the building while he wrapped up Carver's body. Kolhep then walked Brown to a different area on the property where a Konex storage container sat, something he had a girlfriend of his purchase for him that he could store guns and other items. Kolhep ordered Brown to get into the hot, pitch-black storage container, gagged her, and chained her. One end of the three-foot chain wrapped around her neck and the other connected to the wall of the container. It can get into the 90s in Woodruff and late summer and early fall, and it must have been simply unbearable inside that container. During Brown's two months in captivity, Kolhep would visit her between 1 and 3 p.m. daily, take her to the main building on the property, up to the apartment on the second floor, to feed her, rape her, 
and then he'd walk her back down and out and return her to the storage container, where he'd again lock her up in chains. Later in the day, between 5 and 7 p.m., he would return and do it all over again. Brown stated that she would do what he said, as he had warned her that if she was no use to him, she'd end up like Charlie. Colehep would brag to Brown that he was a mass murderer and a serial killer, and had hoped to get his number of kills into the three digits. According to Brown, Culhep confessed to other murders while she was being held captive by him. She said he admitted to killing four people at a bike shop nearby years earlier. While Culhep was being processed by police, he asked to speak with his mother, Regina Taig. It was upon meeting with her that he confessed to shooting Carver and holding Brown captive. Culhep told his mother that Carver was killed for having a smart mouth. Police discovered the body of Carver in a shallow grave at the Woodruff property shortly after Kolhep's arrest. Next to the grave was a shallow, empty grave, which would have been used for Kayla had Kolhep decided he no longer had a use for her. Four days after his arrest, police urged Kolhep to aid them in finding the other two bodies on his property. Victims that Kolhep had informed Kayla Brown of Kolhep agreed and was brought into the Woodruff property where he pointed out where the bodies were buried. They were identified as Megan and Johnny Coxie, the couple that had gone missing in 2015. Johnny had a gunshot wound to his torso and Megan a gunshot to the head. Carver's white Pontiac was also found on the Woodruff property, but it had been stained brown and covered in brush in an attempt to conceal it. Culhep said he met Megan Coxie when she was panhandling at an intersection, and he offered her a job cleaning houses. He met her husband on that Saturday, December 19, 2015, for the first time. They both arrived at his Woodruff property to do some work. Culhep claimed that he murdered Johnny Coxie because he and his wife Megan were plotting to rob him, and that Johnny had pulled out a knife. So he killed Johnny and then decided to hold on to Megan, but wondered what to do with her. He handcuffed her and put her inside his Konex container that he had on his property, which stored his guns, all obtained illegally, as he was a registered sex offender and couldn't obtain firearms legally. He fed Megan food, still considering what he would do with her. According to Kolhep, he would bring her cigarettes at her request, and she would try to set the container on fire most likely in an attempt to draw attention from someone other than her captor. About six or seven days after she and her husband arrived on the property, Kolhep walked Megan out of the container and shot her in the back of the head. Most likely, Kolhep's plan was to hold on to Megan, and she was the main reason that Johnny was killed. The plan all along was to get Megan onto his property and imprison her and rape her, Johnny simply got in the way. But when Culhep found that Megan was too hard to control, he killed her too. He told the same story of feeling disrespected when it came to Carver and Brown, that Carver was rude, that the couple were planning on robbing him. Again, with Carver's murder, Kayla was the reason. Culhep wanted her, wanted to take her. Carver, like Johnny Coxie, was simply in the way. While in police custody, Kolhep confessed to the quadruple homicide 
at the bike shop and told them what gun he used to commit the murders, something that only police and the murderer would know. Police were shocked but got to work writing down the killer's confession. Cole had provided officers with a long, detailed account of how he committed the murders that day, 13 years earlier. He told of the events in a calm, matter-of-fact way, as if he were talking about a day at work. At certain points during Kolhep's confession, he tried to make some jokes or even make light of the events. All in all, it seemed that Kolhep was finally ready to talk. Kolhep had purchased a 2003 Suzuki GSX R750 in April 2003 when he was 32 years old from Superbike Motorsports, but soon realized that it may not have been the best bike for someone without any experience. He returned to the shop a few days later and discussed the possibility of trading in the bike for something else, and claims that he was made fun of by the employees of the shop. Within two weeks, he had reported the bike stolen and suspected that employees at the bike shop may have been involved simply because they had delivered it to his home, so they must have been the ones responsible for its theft. When he called the police to report the bike stolen, he stated he was made fun of by them as well. According to Kolhep, he went back to the shop on November 6, 2003, with a 9mm handgun in a shoulder holster. His intention was to kill the owner and at least one other employee. He pretended to be interested in purchasing a motorcycle, waited for a customer to exit the store, and went to the back of the shop where Sherbert was bent over working on the bike. Kolhep shot him and walked to the front of the shop where he found Guy, Lucas, and Ponder together. He shot Beverly Guy before shooting Lucas and Ponder, who were now running toward the door. Between shooting Lucas and Ponder, Kolhep had to stop and reload. Kolhep fled the scene in his Acura Legend, a car that was not noted by witnesses as being in the area at the time of the murders, and went home. There, he dismantled the gun and hid the parts in a bunch of kitty litter, which he discarded in a dumpster. During the police interrogation, Kolhep told the investigating officer that his intention was not to kill Beverly Guy, as he does not like shooting women, and she was not a primary target. It was during this interview that Kolhep also mentioned that he would never hurt a child. In the next breath, Kolhep informed them that he cleared that place in under 30 seconds, and you guys would have been proud. Let's look back at the investigation of the Superbike murders in 2003 and what leads were available. If you remember from the last episode, Customer Kelly Sisk recalled seeing a customer talking to Scott Ponder about a bike for someone with no riding experience. The customer was described as a white male between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, six foot tall, and between 175 and 200 pounds. Kolhep was 32 years old at the time of that murder, is a white male, and in 2003 stood at five foot 11, weighing approximately 200 pounds although at the time of his arrest in 2016, he was nearly 300 pounds. This all matched up to Sisk's description, as well as Kolhep's claim to police that he had waited for a customer to leave the store before beginning his shooting rampage. On May 26, 2017, Kolhep pled guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of criminal sexual assault. He agreed to a plea bargain to avoid the death penalty, 
and was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. That's more than 160 years before Kolhep will see the light of day. At the sentencing, family members of the victims faced the killer in court and read statements. Kolhep showed no emotion, no remorse. While in custody, Kolhep also told of a double murder he committed, but was very vague on details, such as what year the crime took place. He told police of a time that he was outside of his apartment and two men approached him, one with a knife and the other with a hammer. Kolhep had two knives on him, and as he was about to be attacked by the two men, he turned the tables on them. The male with the knife was stabbed in the thigh and chest by Kolhep, and the man with the hammer fled. Kolhep ran after him and stabbed him in the side of the neck. He loaded the dead bodies into the truck of his Acura legend, cleaned up the crime scene as best he could, and drove to a remote area and buried the bodies in the honorary area of South Spartanburg County. In 2018, after Kolhep's conviction, police went to the area to locate the bodies and to give the families of the victims possible closure. However, Kolhep wouldn't give much more information, and law enforcement were not even sure the events had taken place. After an extensive search of the location where Kolhep said the bodies were buried, nothing was found. Spartanburg County Sheriff Chuck Wright stated that his team would look for as long as possible, but in the end, Kolhep wouldn't give any more details, and it's possible he was just toying with the police. The discovery of Kayla Brown and the subsequent arrest and a confessions by Todd Kolhep gathered a lot of media attention in 2016 and 2017. Soon, another disturbing history of Kolhep's internet usage came to light, and the public were given more insight into his twisted sense of humor. Kolhep had left reviews on products he purchased on Amazon. For a folding shovel, he suggested to keep it in the car for when you have to hide the bodies and you left the full-size shovel at home. Reviewing a padlock, Kolhep wrote that it works great. Also, if someone talks back, go old school on them by putting this in a sock and beating them. The storage container that Kayla Brown was held captive in was secured with several padlocks. Was his writings a way of him showing off that he, a murderer, was hiding in plain sight? Did he simply get a weird satisfaction out of this? Was he turned on by his own public display of sadism? Was it a cry for help? While incarcerated, FBI profiler John Douglas assessed Kolhep in order to examine what was going on in his mind, why he committed the crimes he did, why the crimes at the bike shop were so different than the crimes on Kolhep's property. Why were the bike shop murders organized and tactical in their execution, while the murders at the Coxies and of Carver seemed disorganized and spontaneous? Douglas tried getting in to interview Kolhep in prison, but it was very difficult, and ultimately, the profile had to be done by mail, with Kolhep filling out a psychological assessment. Douglas believed that Kolhep was capable of being introspective and was confident that the responses provided would lead to some answers. In the handwritten assessment, Kolhep indicated that he told at least two people about the murders at the bike shop, but this was never confirmed. The psychological assessment indicated that having Megan Coxie as his prisoner was completely overwhelming 
and he didn't feel like he had control over the situation. But oddly, he didn't learn from this experience, as he did the same thing again when it came to Kayla Brown and Charlie Carver. They, too, had come to Kolhep's property to do some work for him, and a similar event unfolded. Kolhep said that he overheard them talking about how they were going to rob him, so he shot Carver and held Brown captive, figuring out what to do with her. He locked her in the Konex container, unsure what he was going to do next. Kolhep stated that any sexual activity that occurred between him and Brown was consensual, although Brown denies any consent took place. It's as if Kolhep is okay with admitting that he committed murder or kidnapping, but when it comes to rape, he wants to distance himself. Frankly, the idea that Brown was consenting or, in his words, asking for sex constantly is preposterous, and if anything, she was most likely acting in a way that helped ensure her survival. Cooperate or be killed. Do what he wants, and maybe this will be over soon. Whether Kolheb actually thinks Brown and he were having a consensual relationship, or if he's simply lying to investigators to paint himself in a more favorable light, it's anyone's guess. Kolheb also provided Douglas with some insight into how he felt about his crimes. He reportedly hated that he killed Beverly Guy at the bike shop in 2003. He thought that Johnny Coxey brought on his fate himself in 2015 and had no regrets over killing him. With Megan Coxey, he felt that he simply didn't have a better solution. And finally, when it came to Charlie Carver and Kayla Brown, Kolhep believed he overreacted and should have simply terminated their employment. I'm certainly not a profiler and can't attest to how Kolhep actually feels or why he committed his crimes, but I do wonder how he became a monster. This brings up the topic that is discussed when any serial killer is being studied. Nature or nurture? Was Kolhep born evil, or was there something in his background, his upbringing, that led to his disregard for human life? His perception that everyone he came across was somehow wronging him or out to get him? That being, quote, made fun of somehow justified a quadruple homicide? I can't make the determination on whether Kolhep is a result of nature or nurture, but let's dive into his upbringing a bit. Todd Christopher Samsell was born on March 7, 1971, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. After his parents divorced when he was a toddler, his mom remarried to a man named Carl Kolhep, who adopted the boy when he was five. Todd Kolhep had an above-average intelligence, but he was an angry and hostile child who showed cruelty to animals. At nine years old, Kolhep was admitted to a mental health institution for just under four months in an attempt to get him help for anger management. Unhappy at home with his mother and stepfather, Kolhep begged to move to Arizona to live with his father, who he barely knew. His mother allowed him after he threatened suicide. Not long after Kolhep joined his father in Arizona, he realized that the grass was not greener, as he received little attention and was left alone at home quite often, sometimes for days at a time. When he tried to move back east to live with his mother, she would refuse and make excuses to get Kolhep to stay in Arizona with his dad. Kolhep claimed that as a child of 14 in Arizona, a friend of his was shot by someone who was taking part in a gang initiation, and Kolhep responded by shooting at the gunman's car, 
unsure if he ever actually wounded or killed the man. Kolhep says he later got rid of the gun by throwing it in a nearby dumpster. Kolhep was arrested for his first crime at age 15, kidnapping a 14-year-old female classmate that he had attempted to date, but who had repeatedly turned him down. The girl lived in Kolhep's neighborhood, and one day he took his father's handgun, went to the girl's house where she was babysitting her two younger siblings, and forced her at gunpoint to go back to his home. Inside, he duct-taped and bound her before raping her. Afterward, his victim said that he paced around the house contemplating killing her or letting her go. The girl, in an extremely smart and bold move, suggested that he let her go and that in order to explain her absence from her home, they could just tell her parents that she was helping Kolhep find his dog. She promised not to tell anyone what had really happened. Kolhep agreed and returned the girl to her house where police were waiting. Her five-year-old brother had called the police when he realized she was missing. Kolhep was arrested and charged as an adult. He was convicted of kidnapping, sexual assault, and committing a dangerous crime against a child. His sentence was 15 years, and he had to register as a sex offender, something that sticks with you for the rest of your life. Later, when filling out the psychological profile for John Douglas, Kolhep expressed remorse for this crime. It was in prison that he pursued college and received a bachelor of science degree in computer science from Central Arizona College. Kolhep was released from prison in August 2001 after 14 years served and moved to Spartanburg, South Carolina, where his mother was now living. He enrolled in a technical college and received his Bachelor of Science degree in business administration and marketing, setting up his own real estate business. He also found time to obtain a private pilot's license from the Federal Aviation Administration. As for his personal life, Kolhep had spent formative years behind bars and had to learn skills to be social. He visited strip clubs frequently and obtained services from sex workers, eventually feeling comfortable enough to engage in a long-term relationship and went on to have a few serious girlfriends. So how was a convicted sex offender able to get a real estate license and operate his own firm out of his home in Moore, South Carolina? Quite simply, he lied about his crimes when applying for the real estate license in 2006. His BS version of the events of the crime was that at age 15, he and his girlfriend had gotten into an argument and he had pulled his parents' gun on her, threatening that she couldn't leave until their fight was resolved. His lies were effective, and Kolhep was able to gain his real estate license and build a successful business of his own, TKA Real Estate. Descriptions of Kolhep by those who worked for him and with him ran the gamut between professional and easy to work with to weird, creepy, and someone who watched a lot of porn while at the office. The website for TKA Real Estate had another window into his odd sense of humor. On it, he described his company's mission and how he had hired graphic designers, marketing specialists, and web designers to promote his company. And in that description, also threatened those employees that if they didn't do a good job, he'd refuse to feed them. What a guy. Kolhep's mother, Regina Tague, gave a few interviews after his 2016 arrest and always struck me as a woman in deep denial about who her son was, or she was doing her best to distance herself from what he had done. 
In one of her interviews with CBS, 48 Hours, Tig tearfully stated that she hated that her son was defined as a serial killer and that he wasn't a monster. She described Kolhep's childhood and recalled his anger and hostility and his threats of violence against her. He had once killed his goldfish because he simply didn't want it anymore and took a hammer to his brand new bedroom furniture. Ultimately, Kolhep's mother apologized to the families of the victims, families that were hurting because of her son. Regina Tigg died before her son was sentenced. While there are no obvious indications that the four murders at the bike shop could have been prevented, the investigation afterward seemed to miss a lot of opportunities. Kolhep was on the bike shop's customer log, but was never interviewed by law enforcement. He had a criminal background and was a registered sex offender. He matched the description of the customer that Kelly Sisk saw talking to the shop owner on that fateful day. Still, 13 years went by, three more murders, one imprisoned, tortured woman. Todd Kolhep is incarcerated at Broad River Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. The murders at the Blue Ridge Bank that occurred in 2003 still remain unsolved as of the recording of this episode. Anyone with information is urged to contact Greer Police in South Carolina. While Kolhep continues to maintain that there are other victims out there, nothing has been confirmed, and the FBI are looking into it. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. More episodes are coming soon. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.